Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Well, I think you're in for a treat today because we have another conversation with my dear friend, Dr. John Woodbridge. Welcome back, John, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here, Timothy. Now, you and I have had several of these podcast conversations. Uh, You know, I think I would just have to make up a topic just to talk to you. You're such an interesting conversationalist, and you've lived, as I have now, through a little swath of uh, evangelical history. And so we're going to talk. We, we did a we did a podcast. I don't know when it was aired um, on the great evangelical leaders we have known. Yes. So we talked about people like Carl uh, Henry and Ken Concer and Billy Graham and Francis Schaeffer, some of those great figures that have shaped our lives in particular ways. Chuck yes. Colson. Yes. And and um, I think that was just a lot of fun and very interesting to get your perspective on those great uh, people. Well, we're going to we're going to delve back now a little bit earlier in 20th century evangelical history. Mm-hmm. And talk about a period that we sometimes characterize as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And at some point you can describe those words and what they mean. But we want to do this through the lens of your own father, Dr. Charles Woodbridge. He's a name, I dare say, that is not as well known today as the great evangelical leaders we've talked about in the past, Mm -hmm. and yet played a very pivotal role at certain intersections sections in the history of the evangelical movement in the 20th century, a person who I think ought to be better known. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about him. Uh, he's a fascinating figure to me. Uh, and why don't you just begin by telling us a little bit about his life story and how he grew up and son of a missionary in China, I think, and all, all of that background. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's a delight to, to talk about my father. Obviously, one's uh, very appreciative of him and loved him dearly. Uh, he was the son of uh, missionary parents in China. Um, my grandfather and grandmother uh, were Southern Presbyterian missionaries in China and uh, a long time ago. And they uh, were uh, somewhat critical in, of importance for the American government because my gr- grandparents ran the largest English-speaking Christian newspaper. And consequently, uh, they communicated quite a bit with my grandmother's uh, first cousin, who was Woodrow Wilson. And uh, as you know, uh, we've talked about it, uh, my grandmother introduced Woodrow Wilson uh, to her girlfriend, and and that's the way Woodrow Wilson met his first wife. So uh, there was really quite a connection between uh, the Presbyterian Wilson, who had been the president of... Uh, of uh, Princeton Uni- University. So my, my, my grandparents came from that background uh, and had that experience, but my father was born then in China and he uh, was raised as a missionary kid uh, and then went off to a Moody School up in Massachusetts. Northfield. Then, yeah, Northfield, exactly. Mm-hmm. And he recounts a lot of this stuff in a diary and it's rollicking stuff. He had unfortunately uh, almost an overbearing sense of humor which comes across in his diary, and it's a lot of fun to read. But at any rate, he went to that school and then went to Princeton uh, University, 
and played soccer and did fairly well academically, but he didn't know what to do with his life. And so he went back to China to teach for a year. And then that picks up the story of his role in evangelicalism. He came back then to America after Princeton and entered a Princeton Theological Seminary in uh, 1924, right at the height of the modernist fundamentalist controversy. So that sort of sets the stage for his involvement. Now maybe we should stop for just a moment and talk about uh, fundamentalism as it yes. arose historically. Uh, there were a series of pamphlets called the Fundamentals that yes. were published before your father came to Princeton. 1910 to 1915. What were they about and how did they come to be? Uh, the Fundamentalist pamphlets were launched by uh, the president of uh, Biola, who saw a need to try to uh, bring evangelicals back to the faith who were straying from his point of view, uh, due to straying away from the faith, uh, due to the impact of, uh, of higher criticism and evolution. And so their purposes for these pamphlets, which were written by Canadians, English, and Americans, uh, was to help people come back and reaffirm the faith. And they were not polemical very much in, in, in nature at all. Very encouraging. Uh, some of them had to do with evangelism, but also dealing with, you know, with higher criticism, so, so forth. So the word fundamentalist uh, sometimes is hooked up with these pamphlets, but that's probably not exactly accurate, uh, because the fundamentalist controversy itself of the 1920s was much more polemical. These pamphlets were not. Yes. So that word, fundamentalist, I think was coined by an American Baptist named Curtis Lee Laws. Correct. Around 1919, 1920? 1920, right. And uh, so be immediately kind of took off, and he felt there needed to be a kind of galvanizing movement at that point. Yes. Things had progressed a little further. But one of the things, before we leave the fundamentals, the pamphlets, it's always interested me is how ecumenical, interdenominational, yes. you mentioned they're drawn from different countries, these yes. leaders, different stripes. For yes. example, among Baptists, E.Y. Mullins, who yes. was the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and usually seen as a kind of moderate conservative uh, theologian, wrote one of the pamphlets yes. or the, the fundamentals. There were a number of other outstanding leaders uh, who were not recognized as kind of firebrands or radicals, no. but they were trying to put a stake in the ground and to do it with charity and with, with clarity. Yes, they did, and it was funded by some oil people and one of the key goals that I didn't understand until working through them rather recently was that they hoped that these pamphlets, which were given to all YMCA directors, YWCA directors, millions of copies throughout the world, one of the major purposes was to encourage evangelism. Mm. This is often overlooked. But you're absolutely right. The tone of these pamphlets was moderate. It just did not comport with some of the much more... Uh, pungent vocabulary of the 20s. By the time your father, uh, Charles Woodbridge, arrived at Princeton as a student, yes. uh, things had heated up a bit. Yes. Uh, and one, one of the figures uh, in that uh, escalation, let's say, of the conflict into the fundamentalist modernist controversy was Harry Emerson Fosdick. Yes. Tell us about Fosdick. Fosdick was a, a, a charismatic person, a, a very talented individual with a large following. In 1920. Two, he wrote a piece called Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And he asked the question, will these individuals who have a certain view of Scripture triumph and force uh, good people out of the Presbyterian Church, out of other churches? And his answer was a resounding no. And consequently, uh, that work set off in many people's minds the fundamentalist controversy in a serious fashion. And the very next year, before my father arrived in 24, 
the person who was going to influence him so much, J. Gresham Major wrote a book called Christianity and Liberalism, and then that really heated up the controversy because uh, Professor Machen, who was a Greek scholar at Princeton, argued that liberalism was not a country cousin religious view from Christianity, it was a different religion. It had different origins in pantheism. So when you say to Protestant liberals that they're not Christians, that smokes their windshield, but, and as it turns out, things really get hot. So that book that you mentioned by J. Gresham Machen, yes. Christianity and Liberalism, yes. is almost a, a kind of landmark publication. It, yes. it uh, in, in some ways drove a deeper stake into the ground. Yes, the lines is. became more clearly divided. Very much so. And one, one of the things about Machen, we want to talk a little bit more about him sure. in our conversation today. Uh, you know, he was a first-rate scholar. You bet. And uh, he wrote with grace, with elegance, so that even a, uh, a figure like Walter Lippmann, a, yes. a journalist, not a, not a very religious man at all, yes. uh, commended him for being yes. such a fine, erudite spokesman for that point of view. Absolutely. And he also, like so many, uh, so many young Americans, had studied in Germany. And he had been very impressed by Protestant liberals with whom he studied, particularly Hermann, who he, who he said he wrote to his mother and said, Hermann loves Jesus. And this is sort of a confusing thing to find a liberal who loved Jesus. And so Machen uh, battled through the quest for the historical Jesus before he would accept a position at Princeton. Consequently, when he started to write about liberalism, he knew what he was talking about because he had been in Germany and he was, as you say, an eloquent writer, and his work, Christianity and Liberalism, really is a classic of, of 20th century theology, worthwhile for our listeners to dig into. It is a wonderful book. And even before that, I think Machen had written a book called The Origin of Paul's Religion. Yes, he had. Which, again, is a first-rate uh, study of the Apostle Paul and yes. his conversion over against a view of Pauline uh, life that saw him as purely the product of Hellenistic culture. Exactly. Uh, Machen did all those things. He wrote other books as well. And, uh, and your friend and my friend, Chuck Colson, uh, later in life was put onto, uh, onto Machen and loved reading Machen. You know, the uh, first book by Machen that I read was his Greek grammar. He wrote a grammar of the Greek New Testament. Yes, he was. And I used that when I was first learning baby Greek uh, many, many years ago. So yes. it's a pretty good textbook even today. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So anyway, we're getting a little bit sidetracked here, but, but back to uh, these great figures. Your father now is at Princeton. Uh, he becomes a, a friend and a student of the great scholar J. Gresham Machen. He did, and uh, Machen will be probably, in some regards, the person who brings him to full faith in Christ. He was so impressed by Machen. In those days, Machen and he, my father, lived on the same floor of a dorm. We should say that Machen was a bachelor, a lifelong bachelor. Lifelong bachelor. Lifelong bachelor. Loved to play chess, loved to play checkers. And he did that with his, the students. He was called Das by the students. Plus, he had a little extra money, and he'd buy tickets so the students could go to Princeton football games. So here you have this remarkable scholar, and you go walk down the hallway, and you shave with him in the morning, <laughs> and then you go to class with him, and then you go to a football game with him. My father was totally taken by him. You know, it, it sounds like a Mr. Chips kind of character. Oh, <laughs> yeah, he was a Mr. Chips, but... Maybe knowing a little bit more Greek than Mr. Chips. <laughs> yes, right. Well, that, what a remarkable opportunity, though, it not was. only for your father but other students to have this kind of very collegial relationship with a great, great scholar of the day. Yes. And my father got into trouble with him almost, almost immediately when he got there. He was in a, 
he was in a meeting where some of the students were deciding whether they're going to pull out of the uh, pull out of a, a union with the liberal students. And my father was studying Hebrew in the back of the auditorium when they were going to take a vote. And he he stood up and he he said, "This is simply a, a personality d debate." As he walked out, he 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 ran into uh, uh, Dr. Machen, and Dr. Machen said to him as they were walking out of the building at Princeton, you were totally wrong on this, 100% wrong. And then uh, my father was really upset with Machen, went back to his dorm room, and, the, and some of the students straightened him out. So he, he and Machen, you know, they had clashes, but then my father thought he was one of the best Christians he ever met. Yeah. Now, the incident you're referring to is in the context of uh, the kind of revolution that was happening within Princeton Theological Seminary correct. itself at the time. That's correct. There was a kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it takeover or a uh, reversal of, of direction. How would you talk about that? Uh, my father in his diary, he was less aware of this at the time, but then by the time he left Princeton in 1927, Machen and others who were on the conservative side of Presbyterian thought, they lost in the reorganization of Princeton and this ultimately led to Machen leaving Princeton to found Westminster Theological Seminary. So he was right, my father was there right at the time that this a tremendous reversal took place. But then my father had left by 27 to go to Germany. Yes, I want to, I want to talk about uh, the, that uh, experience of your father in Germany. It's right. fascinating. But before we get to that, let's say a little bit about when Machen left and, and other professors, not all, but some other professors also left Princeton to begin a new theological seminary, yes. Westminster Theological yes. Seminary, still existing today right. in Philadelphia. In 1929. Right. So that was, uh, in some ways, the cap of a whole decade-long and longer, really, struggle, uh, you might say, for the soul of Princeton. Uh, it, it definitely was. And not to say that there were not believers at, at Princeton after 1929, but the face of, of Princeton changed remarkably after 1929. Where would a figure like Clarence McCartney fit into some of that? Clarence McCartney was a, a major Presbyterian evangelical of, of the day, and he, I think, represents the wing of evangelicalism that wondered about whether or not there really should have been this separation. In other words, not, uh, not all Presbyterians thought Mason was doing the right thing. Uh, by pulling out and, and forming Westminster. So within the Presbyterian Church, there were a good number of folks who thought that loyalty to the Presbyterian Church meant that you didn't separate, and if you did separate, then you'd lose your voice, etc. So McCartney took another stand on that, a fine Christian stand. Now, we're going to come back to your father and his going to Germany, but it just strikes me that this event we're talking about, this yes. process of the the division within Presbyterianism yes. and the separation of those who left Princeton yes. to start Westminster. This in some ways is very similar to what's happening in many denominations today. Yes. And this question, do we stay in? Do we try to take a stand and make a change within a denomination that may be going in a direction that we ourselves are not totally satisfied with or not satisfied with at all? Or do we come out? Do we, do we leave? Do we start something new and fresh and Ask God to bless that. Uh, that's a big, difficult question for a lot of Christians today. It is, and it was impressed upon me again what a big question it was, is about a couple of weeks ago. I was speaking at a, a mainline Presbyterian celebration of the Reformation in North Carolina, and a lot of the folks who were there were really on the more liberal side of Presbyterianism, if you want to call it that. But a good number of the folks who were there 
were so delighted that when we'd be talking about the gospel and about the word of God, and I realize that what you just said is very profound. What happens when people pull out? Because there are a number of individuals who are then without shepherds. And so they're still there and they don't get the tender care. This goes back to the problem of Winthrop in the 17th century Puritanism. It's a difficult issue. Do you pull out or do you stay? And I think it has to be settled biblically, but even then it's, it's a complex call. And you need a lot of discernment, oh, I think, do. a lot of judgment and uh, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to yes, make those decisions. And yes, you do. I've, I've often been very hesitant to criticize people too harshly one way or the other Yes. Uh, who hasn't themselves struggled with that kind of issue. Yeah, it, it really, you know, it seems like it's an easy call, but... I mean, there's an emotional, personal side of it. When you, when you see dear believers who don't have folks there, it's, it's, it's tough. Now, of course, I'm a Baptist, and we have thousands of divisions. You know, we're, we're just a dividing uh, group of people to some extent. And I remember these debates between the Southern Baptist and the Independent Baptists when yes. I was growing up. And the same kind of, you know, angst, you might say, yes. that gripped us. Uh, yes. do, do we stay in? Do we leave? Do You're we right. make a change? So yes. it's not unique to Presbyterian. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. <laughs> well, let's go back to the 1920s and uh, to the very interesting story of your father. He's now finishing Princeton yes. and uh, had become a good friend and uh, a close associate at that point uh, with uh, Jake Gresham Machen. And then he goes to Germany, as Machen himself had done earlier Correct. in his own academic career. Correct. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I think, I think there's several principles that come out of this experience of my father. And that is sometimes when we think about fundamentalism in the 20s, uh, we have to be careful not to necessarily import from later fundamentalism attitudes towards the, the life of the mind. Uh, Machen was very committed to, the best, to doing and pursuing the best scholarship that he could. And consequently, he had studied in Germany. And so he would say, and my father had agreed with him, it's far better... To, if you're going to learn about, uh, talk about liberalism, to be with liberals. So he encourages my father to go off to Germany, and my father then goes to the University of Berlin and has an opportunity that just is un unbelievable, and that's to work with the greatest theologian of the early uh, 20th century, and that's Adolf von Harnack, who had been a librarian, church historian, key figure, writes what is liberal, uh, what is Christianity, major liberal, and th for reasons that I still totally understand, he got on the radar of Harnack, and so Harnack invited him over to his home. Now, in something you've written, you, you make a supposition, you don't maybe have foolproof evidence of this, but maybe it was Machen who wrote to Harnack, because they had maintained an, a, a, a good relationship, yes, despite their differences, I, and maybe I, recommended your father. Yeah, and I, I doubt hardly anybody on the planet knows that that relationship existed, because what it was is, that Machen appreciated the fact that Harnack would change his view if he got different new evidence. And moreover, uh, he, he, uh, uh, Harnack had uh, reviewed Machen's materials and then Machen collected them and sent them back to, to Harnack. So there was a very good relationship. Who would ever guess that the leading theologian of, of Protestantism, if you will, for, in America, Machen, would be on such good terms with Harnack, even though totally disagreeing with him and assuming that the root problem of Protestant liberalism was naturalism. And so my father goes off there and they write letters back and forth and my father writes to him and says, by the way, when I go to class, I'm using your stuff in order to survive this. <laughs> and so he goes into, he goes into, uh, he goes into Harnack's home on one evening 
and there were nine Germans and himself. And Harnack sits at the end of the table. He doesn't need a Bible. They're studying the pastorals because he's memorized the pastorals in Greek. He, he knows it in German. So they go around, and my, my father suddenly had to do translation work with Harnack. And what was really remarkable is that the, in this diary that we have, we have conversations between Harnack and my father. And, and Harnack says to, uh, uh, to, to my father, Wann sind Sie geboren? When were you born? <laughs> And uh, my father says, and he gives his dates, he says, I, I was doing theology 30 or 40 years before that, <laughs> you know, putting the finger down, good German finger on him, and so forth. And then, uh, and then he, gave to my, uh, he gave to my father a book he signed. But the key thing that I found amazing, too, was my father told me that he asked uh, Harnack, who is Jesus Christ? And Harnack's response was, he was, a, he was the greatest man who ever lived. And my father must have had a tremendous amount of chutzpah said to him, uh, was he more than that? No, he was the greatest man who ever lived. And my father told me, this is very important to know, because sometimes it's, it's not acknowledged that in, in that debate over fundamentals and modernism, at least in the 20s, the issue of the very deity of Christ was at stake. And, uh, you know, there are many remarkable things about that account you just shared. One, that um, Charles Woodbridge uh, would have the opportunity to study with Harnock. Yes. Two, that he would be invited into his home yes. for a scholarly gespräch uh, for a whole term, for a whole term, once a week, right? Yes. And then three, that your father would know German well enough to participate in that conversation. That's all remarkable in the light of you know what one would normally expect for a young American graduate born to yeah, Germany. Yeah, and for what one would expect too with these caricatures of fundamentalists in the 20s as if they were anti-intellectual, they weren't ready to engage in scholarship of the world. That's, that's a totally bogus analysis of what Machen and some of these people did or thought. Now, Harnock is a fascinating figure, yes. as you've well characterized him, the leading liberal theologian of the day, yes. not only in Germany, I would say, but in the world. In the world. And a person of first-rate scholarship, yes. you know, his uh, tremendous magnum opus, The History of Dogma, exactly, uh, which traces Christianity from the New Testament right through the early church and That's even right. has a chapter on Luther, uh, uh, whom he saw in some ways as overturning the history of doctrine. Yes. Uh, I think he misread Luther grossly, mm -hmm. but uh, it, was a, it was a popular liberal view of the Reformation, yeah. a Protestant who in some ways was a champion of the kind of individualism that comes to characterize a certain strand of liberal religion. But then Karl Barth was his student as yes. well. Yes. And there's a ex whole exchange between Harnock and Bart. It's just fascinating to me that Charles Woodbridge from Princeton Seminary, student of Machen, is now drawn into the orbit of this greatest liberal theologian in the world. Yes. And in a sense, confronts him, I'm sure in a very polite way, but nonetheless a I firm hope, way. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> With the reality of who Jesus Christ is. He did. He did. And, and, and so... Again, with all the various interpretations of, this, of, the, of the 20s, I come back to the point, as my father told me personally, he said the issue at stake was, you know, when you get down to the nitty-gritty question, uh, was Jesus Christ the Son of God or not? Because obviously liberalism put so much emphasis on the fatherhood of God. Jesus was, had more God consciousness than anybody else, but he was not divine. Yeah, and that's very much in the same tradition that you get coming out of Schleimacher and the uh, liberal tradition of the 19th century, of which Harnock, in a way, was the, the apex, he was. you might say. Yes. Well, uh, so 
carry us a little bit further into the story. We don't have too much time to go into all the weeds, but the weeds are really interesting here. A lot of weeds. Because your father comes back to America after having studied with Harnock. And uh, then tell us about, you know, he becomes himself a missionary for a while. Yes. He initially, he became a pastor of the First Presbyterian Church in Flushing, New York. And he it was church grew. Machen came for his inauguration. Machen was involved in his life in a total way. But my father then went to the mission field. He married my mom, who had been a, a missionary beforehand as a single lady in the French Cameroons. And they met on a blind date in New York City. And they, they, they go off to the Cameroons and everything's going well. He comes down with malaria. He, he goes off and, it, when, and he talks about, why did you do this? Why did he leave a church where there were 700 applicants for the position after he left? And he said, because Machen had instilled with him through the Holy Spirit's help, obviously, a love for evangelism. He thought Africans needed to know the gospel. So he went over there only to find out that the fundamentalist modernist controversy jumped right across the Atlantic into Africa. And, and so some of the fracases that were taking place here came to Africa and then he had he stood up for what he thought was the right thing in defense of Machen because Machen was being criticized in Africa. And when that happened, then Machen ultimately so concerned about what was going on in missions formed the independent mission board that was independent of the Presbyterian Church and he called back my father to be the secretary of it. So my, my father came back here to, to the United States, and he worked very closely with Machen for two or three years with the Independent Mission Board. And so he knew him very well indeed. Now, another thing that's fascinating to me about this part of the story is that uh, Machen and I think your father, through him, in some ways had a breadth of relationships that one would not necessarily expect of very conservative Presbyterians. For example, I believe one of the first speaking engagements your father took as the general secretary of this new mission board was to go to Moody Bible Institute. Yes, and it is so important for us to understand that Machen's view of ecumenism was so attractive. Machen was a fundamentalist in the sense that he thought there were certain fundamentals that hold us hold the faith together that we believe. But on secondary, what he calls secondary issues, he could cooperate with all kinds of folks. He, he was not a separatist like in later fundamentalism, if you will. He says about the Anglicans, you know, I don't agree with their ecclesiology, but I can work with them. The Methodists, I don't agree with their anthropology, but I can work with them. Dispensationalists, I can work with them. But then he, when he was counseling his own students, he said, I do believe that the Westminster Confession is the finest expression of what the faith is. But that doesn't preclude me having relationships with other people. And that's why this, there really needs to be a recasting of what people think about the 1920s and fundamentalism. It's not what we sometimes perceive or think. And he even said uh, some open things about Roman Catholics. Oh, yes, he did. In the sense that, you know, the division between us and them is great, but it's not anything like the division between classical liberalism and the evangelical faith. Absolutely. He would say that. And he'd also say, too, that he totally agreed with the Roman Catholic views on Scripture because he believed in biblical inerrancy. He did as well. I mean, th th this... This is a different world than we sometimes imagine the 20s was. Yeah, thank you for that insight. Now, uh, the, this new mission board has just been created. Your father is the general secretary of it. Machen is really the moving force behind it. He is. And uh, they're into recruiting missionaries, sending them out to the That's mission right. fields of the world. So mm -hmm. it's arduous work, a very difficult mm -hmm. work, raising money, yep. uh, recruiting missionaries. Now, this in itself becomes a kind of, uh, how can I say this, there, there was a schism within the new mission board, right? 
Well, yes, there was. What ultimately happens is that the mainline Presbyterian Church was very upset having an independent mission board and thinking this violated the constitution of the Presbyterian Church. So Machen became a figure who was thought to be in revolt, and my father would be in revolt. So real pressure started to be put on Machen and my father and others uh, to resign from the mission board and to come back in terms of go back into mission boards of the, the Presbyterian Church. Machen refused to do that. My father did as well. Ultimately, Machen is put on trial, as you as you know, by the, the Presbyterian Church. My father was one of his uh, lawyers. An ecclesiastical trial. Ecclesiastical so. trial, right. And Machen was charged with six charges, and it shows you how wonderful a lawyer my father was. Machen was found guilty on all six counts, <laughs> <laughs> and so forth. I mean, it was this is really tough stuff. And so they 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 suffered then being thrown out or out of the Presbyterian Church. Uh, Machen was president of, of Wheaton College was, my father was, and then that becomes ultimately the basis for the creation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. But you're right, a division that ensued later on, it was split within that movement so that Carl McIntyre took it over uh, in late 1936, uh, just right before Machen died on January 1st, 1937. I tell the story of Machen's death. I th think this is also uh, fascinating and not too well known. Uh, I was speaking in Bismarck, North Dakota at a Catholic college, actually, the University of Mary. Yeah. And um, for, for some reason, the name of Machen came up and they told me that he had actually died not very far from where I was speaking. Yes. Well, uh, Machen was uh, warned uh, in the late... Late, late part of 1936, that he shouldn't take a trip out there because he had a cold. Uh, moreover, he was suffering from the terrible disappointment of being removed from the leadership of the Independent Mission Board. My father talks about this and so forth. So despite the warning that he shouldn't go out there, he went out there anyway, and uh, he came down with pneumonia. And the reason he went out there was that there were people associated with the, the mission board who needed help. So he, he went out there, and then he had this remarkable experience that you probably know about. When he was dying, he came back to sensibility, and he allegedly said, isn't heaven wonderful? So people were greatly comforted by that. And then some people tell the story, then he came back and said, uh, isn't the Reformed faith wonderful? <laughs> now, if he said that, then that gives you sort of a little feeling of what the theology of heaven is. So a lot of Reformed <laughs> people have, have hooked onto that. But he was—he he really was a person who followed duty and went out to serve the Lord out there. Yeah. Well, uh, we don't have time to go on with the story of your sure. father's life. His life continued for some decades after yes, that. It and it was a very full and productive life. He mm -hmm. uh, became a, a founding member of the faculty of Fuller Theological Seminary. Close to it. He came yeah. in 1950, just right after. So very early, after very Fuller early. was founded, I think, in 47? 47, right. And then uh, his life continued as a Bible teacher, as yes. a writer, and right. something of a controversialist, would you say? In I, the, I say that's a moderate way of talking about it. <laughs> And that bears a whole other podcast. We just have to do Charles Woodbridge Part 2. I know, whatever. But I, I wonder what you think, as he looked back on this period with Machen especially, and his work with Harnock, the, becoming a general secretary for this mission board, and his defending Machen in his trial, did he have any regrets about this? What did he think of Machen at the very end? My father thought that J. Gresham Machen was, uh, besides Harnack, one of the greatest minds he had ever encountered, number one. 
he thought of him as being one of the most gracious persons, despite the reputation he had as being caustic, a very gracious and generous person. But he also thought of him as a, an individual who spoke so clearly about the gospel. He was a gospel-oriented person, he was a biblically-based person, and he uh, represented the best of the, in many regards, the best of old Princeton. Some people thought that when Warfield died in the early 20s that Princeton died with him, but I would say it was when Machen left Princeton in 1929 that old Princeton really passed on. Well, hearing you talk about all this makes me uh, wish I had met your father and I had known him because his footprints are very deep in the history of the evangelical church in the 20th century. Uh, my guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. John D. Woodbridge. He is Research Professor of Church History, the History of Christian Thought at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois, where he's been on the faculty since 1970, a prolific author, writer, historian, and a great Christian soul. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Well, it's my privilege. I, I mean that sincerely, Timothy. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.